Well, welcome to week three of this collection that we are calling Hyssop. And if this is your first time with us, you're like, what incarnation is happening? What are we talking about? Hyssop is a plant that is very, 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 very ancient, like predates the Bible, that was used for cleaning, cleaning anything that was unwell. So whether it's something in your house or something in your life, hyssop was used to sterilize, to clean. So it would be the equivalent of us saying, this collection is called bleach, but that just doesn't sound as cool. And like, what would a bleach bottle? Like, I don't even know what we would do with that. But it comes from King David in the book of Psalms. He asks God to cleanse him. It was after he made a gigantic mistake. And he asks God to cleanse him with hyssop. And so he's meaning, God, all the way down to my soul, all the way down to the very center of who I am, would you show up in my life and clean me? Would you show up in my life and change me, forgive me, heal me, use me for your purposes? And so that's what we've been talking about over the last few weeks. Week one, Bill kicked us off talking about the restless soul, those times in our life where we just can't sit still. We don't know what we're supposed to do. We're trying to make it all work, and it doesn't seem to be happening. And then in week two, we talked about the heavy soul, those things that weigh us down, all of these things that we need God to come in and clean in our lives. Because the unifying thought throughout this collection has been, we are not a body with a soul. We are a soul with a body. What's most important in our lives is our soul, our connection to God, our creator. And so we need him to show up in our lives and cleanse us with hyssop. So today we're talking about another type of soul. We're talking about the tortured soul. And unfortunately, I think this is the one that I probably identify with most. Because for me, nobody, nobody can torture my soul as well as I can. I am just the queen of torturing my own soul, of convincing myself that I'm not doing it right. And so today, that's what we're going to look at together. What does it mean to have a tortured soul? And when we hear that word tortured, a lot of us will usually think of something physical, right? It's very easy right now to find stories across the globe, accounts of people who are truly being imprisoned and tortured, and it's devastating. If you just turn on the news, it's so easy to have your heart broken time and time and time again. So we think of torture as something so physical, something so real. So I'm almost ashamed to say that what I think of first is actually really silly in comparison to like real, genuine torture. So please understand that I acknowledge that and I acknowledge that what I'm about to say is ridiculous. I was tortured as a child, not legitimately tortured, tortured by my older brother. I grew up the runt of the litter. I don't know if you can tell by looking at me, I've never been tall. Like, I've never been a large human. Um, my brother was four years older than me, and our cousin was four years older than him. And so the three of us grew up doing everything together. And so tiny little Hannah with these two big guys, it always turned into Hannah being used for something ridiculous. Like, we can't find a football. Let's use Hannah. We can curl her up enough and chuck her across the room. That's a great idea. 
Maybe this happened to you. Maybe you were tortured in this same way. Because I was so little, it was very easy for them to like overtake me. Didn't take much effort. One of them, they'd work together. I'm telling you, these two, they would work together. One of them would pin me down and tickle me until like I hyperventilated. Would tickle me, tickle me, tickle me, tickle me, tickle me. The other one, once I started to scream, it always happens. I'm very sorry for what I'm about to describe. The other one would hack a loogie. Do you guys know what that means? Like anybody Southern enough to know that like it starts way back like on the backside of your brain and you like, <laughs> disgusting. One of them would hack up a loogie and spit it over my face to where if I started to scream, where is it going in my mouth so I can't scream for help. So they would let it dangle as far as they could and then at the last second, suck it back up. This was the most torturous thing that they did to me throughout my entire childhood. That's not the kind of torture we're talking about. We're not talking about a physical torture. We're talking about torturing our souls down at the depths of who we are, torturing ourselves, allowing the circumstances of the world around us to torture us at the inner part of who we are. This is how it's described in scripture in the book of 1 Peter chapter 2. It says, dear friends, I warn you as temporary residents and foreigners, meaning you are not for this world. We have eternity in mind as we live. This is just a temporary place because we know that God has prepared a place for us in heaven. So that's what's being described. You're just here temporarily. So keep away from worldly desires that wage war against your very soul. Did you know that your soul is in a war every single day? Some of you, you might go, yeah, I'm fully aware. Trust me. Romans 7 describes how God's love illuminates the sin in our life. God's love illuminates the areas where we have separated ourselves from him, whether that means that we pushed him away or whether that means that we tried to hide, the areas in our life where we have separated ourselves from God are illuminated by his love. And so then we find ourselves in the middle of a war because once we know what we're doing wrong, once we know how we're distant from God, we have to make the choice Am I going to do what I know is right? Am I going to make a commitment to what God is telling me to do? Or am I going to try to do it on my own? Am I going to try to just do the selfish thing? Am I going to try to take the easy way out? And that is where the war begins in making that choice and battling between what God wants for us and what we've convinced is best. The sin that tortures our souls makes us appear put together and normal on the outside while we are dying a spiritual death on the inside. So what tortures our souls? How do we get to that place? What can we blame as being the bad guy when our souls are tortured? I think it's two things. I think one, we are tortured by the things that we've done. Psalms 38 says it like this, my health is broken because of my sins. My guilt overwhelms me 
It's a burden too heavy to bear. Not only did I grow up as the runt of the litter, I also grew up as an incredibly people-pleasing, rule-following, goody two-shoes, like just obnoxious, like just, you would not have thought I was cool, never did I claim to be cool. I was very, very much excited about following the rules. So naturally, when I got to college, I was like, how many rules can I break? How wild can I be? Within reason, I was at Bible college, so it's not like I could get too wild. But when I started college, I was 17 years old. I didn't turn 18 until about two months into college. So when I turned 18, with all of this newfound freedom, I wanted to vote and I wanted to smoke cigarettes because now I was old enough to do both of those things. So I completed the paperwork. This was many, many, many moons have passed. Completed the paperwork and mailed it in to get an absentee ballot so that I could vote in the upcoming presidential election. I was very excited about that. And then I went and bought a pack of cigarettes and found a friend who would go with me way off campus where we could hide and smoke these cigarettes. And I had big dreams. I was going to smoke half of that whole pack. And it was going to be awesome because I was breaking rules and taking names. So we drive, not smart, don't recommend it, to a dark park in like the dead of night, way off of campus. No one knew where we were. This is a setup for like a terrible horror movie, okay? So we get to the park, we climb up into the bed of my truck and pull down the tailgate. We're sitting on the edge of the tailgate and we light up those cigarettes and I have never been cooler. And so I take the very first puff of this cigarette, pack up half of my lung, violently, did not know what I was doing, threw it on the ground, stomped it out, got back in the truck, drove back to the dorm, never to be spoken of again, except for the shame of breaking that rule and lying about it would haunt me for years to come. I tortured my own soul with stupidity. But we all know that the older we get, the higher the stakes become. There are so many more opportunities to feel the weight of guilt and shame now that we're adults. The lies that grow out of control, all of the ways that you've cheated to get ahead, the substances that keep you addicted, all of the ways that you have overindulged, the sexual things that have captivated you, all of the ways that you have twisted what should have been good, the ways you've spent well beyond your means, all of the ways that you've just been judgmental and trying to keep up this cycle of sin and guilt that we find ourselves in far too often is a burden scripture says too heavy to bear on our own our souls are tortured by the things we've done but we're also tortured by the lies that we believe John 8 says the devil was a murderer from the beginning. He has always hated the truth because there is no truth in him. When he lies, it is consistent with his character. For he is a liar and the father of lies. Scripture says he's not just a liar. Like he doesn't just tell you one lie and feel like that's good enough. He is the father of lies. What makes a father? Conception, investment, 
participation, development. So when scripture describes him as the father of lies, we can assume that we should know every lie comes from him. Every lie is conceived through him, perpetuated because of his work, grown out of control because he will not stop, and applied because he is always there, trying to find a way to push us away, pull us away from God. He knows exactly what insecurities you have, and he knows exactly which buttons to push, and he knows all of the ways that he can easily convince you to buy into the garbage that he's peddling. The lie I buy into far too often is that I'm not enough. I don't know if you've ever been there, but I can convince myself so easily that the ROI was not enough for the time spent, so it must be me. I must not be enough. I haven't produced enough. I haven't committed enough. I haven't seen enough things come to flourish. Not enough check boxes on my to-do list. So it must be me. My insecurity is that I am only as lovable as I am useful. As much as I can produce is how much people will care. In moments where I have done a terrible job of taking care of myself, you know what that's like, where you have not slept well, not eaten well, you're overworked, stressed out. Those are the times when it's the easiest for me to remember how much I'm not enough. As a matter of fact, the devil doesn't even have to remind me. I'm so used to this cycle that I can easily find myself landing in the trap all on my own, torturing my soul all by myself. So what lies are you believing? How often do you connect who you are to the things that you've done? I didn't achieve enough, so I'm not enough. I did a bad thing, so I'm a bad person. I failed, so I'm a failure. I made a mistake, so I might as well just keep going because I'm too far gone. I can never tell anyone because if they knew, I'd be ruined. This is just the way that I am. If our souls are tortured by the things we've done and the lies we believe, what can we do practically right now today to end the cycle? Well, I think there's two things that are actually pretty easy to understand and even easier to practice. I think we can just tell our souls, remind ourselves, it's better to confess than hide. It's better to get it out in the open than try to handle it on your own. This is what Proverbs 28 says. People who conceal their sins will not prosper. But if they confess and turn from them, they will receive mercy. Unconfessed sin is poison to the soul. And if you've ever had food poisoning, you're going to understand this all too well. Now let's imagine someone unknowingly, accidentally, serves you undercooked chicken. And you, not knowing what's going on, eat that chicken. We all know that within just a few hours, 
you will violently feel the effects of that poison in your body. And what happens next? Your body does everything it can to evacuate the poison. Have you ever been there? Those moments where you are so sick and so distraught that you are praying for death to come quickly because it is absolutely miserable. This evacuation process is too much and it is miserable. But then what happens on the other side? Once all the poison is gone and you can finally see the light of day and hear birds sing once again, you feel so much better. Like you've got a new lease on life. You're not going to eat chicken again anytime soon, but you feel that much better. That's what confession does to our soul. If we let it fester, it will rot us from the inside out. It's not until we let it out, we take hold of it to where it's not taking hold of us, that we find peace and freedom and forgiveness. Now, I'm not saying that everything needs to be confessed to everyone, but all of us have some things that need to be confessed to someone. So how do we confess? I think it's two-faceted. We confess to God to for, to, for forgiveness of sin. We confess to God for forgiveness of sin. This is what it says in 1 John if we confess our sins to him, if we confess our sins to God, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all wickedness. It's easy to think of prayer as this very polished, very dignified act before a distant deity, to think that we have to clean ourselves up on our own and present ourselves as holy before we can talk to a holy God. But that's just not true. We can have a conversation with God anytime we want. Scripture tells us that he's so close, we can just whisper and he can hear us. So when we have gone too far, we've broken all the pieces, all we have to do is go back to God and go, hey, it's me again. I did it again. Whoops. Here's all the pieces. God, I'm so sorry. I tried to control it on my own when I knew that your ways were better. I confess these things, these areas where I've pushed you away, where I've pulled back. The distance between us is my fault, not yours. God, I'm sorry. It's that simple. And then scripture tells us that in those moments, he doesn't just forgive. He forgives and then he forgets. It's not like God is sitting up in heaven with a whiteboard and every time you confess the same thing, he's tally marking it down. Again? For real? Come on, what a mess. That's not what he's doing. When we confess to God, he forgives us and then he forgets all about it because he's washed it away. They're closer than ever, ready to help us walk through life. But that doesn't mean that there aren't consequences to our actions. God forgives us and he washes it away. But then there are things that we have to do to find healing. And I think that so many times we also need to confess to people 
for healing from sin. So we confess to God for forgiveness. We confess to people for healing. James 5 says it like this. Confess your sins to each other and pray for each other so that you may be healed. The earnest prayer of a righteous person has great power and produces wonderful results. Anytime someone says, and it happens to me pretty often, anytime someone says to me, I'm going to tell you something that I've never told anyone before. On the outside, I maintain very professionally. Like I, mm, okay. On the inside, I get giddy. Like I'm so excited. When someone says to me, I've never told anyone this before, but I know that we're about to do some good work. We're about to do something spectacular. We're about to find healing together because confession to God is forgiveness. Confession to people is healing. So when we take these things that are going on in our lives and we bring them to trusted individuals and we say, hey, look, this is what I'm going through, we find healing because now someone else knows. Someone else can cheer us on. Someone else can speak life into us. Someone else can hold us accountable even when it hurts. They can walk through this life together. Truly, that's why we have the church. This journey was not meant to be taken alone. It was meant to be lived in community. And this community is for you. We want you to find forgiveness. We want you to find healing. We want you to have victory over those things that the devil keeps telling you you'll never get over. We know you can because we know God. It's always better to confess than hide. We have a standing promise with our kids. I have an 11-year-old and a six-and-a-half-year-old, and we, Bill and I have a standing promise with both of them that if they come to us when they mess up, not if they mess up, but when they mess up, and they come to us and they say, hey, look, this is what I did, sorry. If they tell us before we find out, they're not in as much trouble than if we found out. If your brother tattles on you first, if your teacher has to call us, if someone else has to tell us, you're in more trouble than if you would have just been honest in the first place. Because healing is found in confession. You can find help when you confess. It's better to confess than hide. And I think the second reminder that overshadows everything that is the most important is we can remind our souls that Christ will set you free. It's a promise. It's a money-back guarantee. 1 Corinthians 10 says, the temptations in your life are no different from what others experience. And God is faithful. He will not allow the temptation to be more than you can stand. When you are tempted, he will show you a way out so that you can endure. This is one of those scriptures that we love to take out of context. We love to say, well, God's never going to give me more than I can handle, so I guess I can just do it on my own. That's not what it's saying. What it's saying is God will never give you more than you can handle because there's nothing that he can't handle. So if you are in relationship with him, if you are on this journey with Jesus, if you are submitting to him, confessing to him, there's nothing you can't handle because he can handle it all. I don't mean to share too hard of a truth, but I can promise you, you are not smart enough, talented enough, 
savvy enough to make it out of this life on your own unscathed. It's just not gonna happen. You're a mess. I'm a mess and that's okay because God isn't. It's not in his character to fail. So when you fail on your own, you fail. But when you fail with God, you still win. When you are broken on your own, you're just broken. But when you are broken with God, you're not, you're whole. There is nothing in this life that he can't save you from. There is nothing in this life that will catch him off guard. There is nothing in this life that he wants you to try to handle on your own. He wants to be with you. He wants you to find freedom. He wants you to live this life submitted to him. Scripture tells us that the same power that raised Jesus from the dead, which you can imagine has to be a pretty significant power, lives inside of us. So addictions don't hold you captive. Failures don't define you. You don't have to stay broken. You don't have to live with a tortured soul because the same power that resurrected Jesus is resurrecting everything that feels gone, everything that feels lost, everything that feels broken inside of you. You have a purpose. You might not know what it is, but you should know a God who does. First Peter, scripture describes it like this. He personally carried. Jesus personally carried your sin, my sin, the sins of the entire world in his body on the cross so that we can be dead to sin, dead to failure, dead to brokenness, dead to everything that feels lost and live for what is right. By his wounds, you are healed. By his wounds, you find freedom. By his wounds, you are made whole. Once you were like sheep who wandered away, but now you have turned to your shepherd, the guardian of our souls. So this war that wages inside of us already has a hero. The war has already been won. There is already victory. The only thing keeping us from that is us. In our torturing, in our torment, in all that we are doing to stay fixed on the problem when we can just invite God in and stop living a tortured life. So as we've done every week with this collection, we don't want you to leave without getting a few moments to reflect on what's happening here. So today, we're gonna take communion together as a family, as a body, as a community. And with this particular message, I think it's so important, so representative of what we're talking about. Before we take the elements, I'm, I'm actually gonna read you the passage in Mark that describes the Last Supper. And I want you to do something a little unique. As I read it, I'm gonna ask you to close your eyes. And I want you to imagine that you're in the room. 
that you can see these events unfolding in front of you as Jesus is seated at, his, at a table surrounded by his best friends, enjoying a meal. And I want you to hear the words that he says and allow them to paint a picture in your mind of what must have been happening. So if you will, close your eyes, and I'm gonna read this passage in Mark. Imagine Jesus seated at the table with his disciples gathered around him, and they're enjoying a meal as friends. What seems like a moment with no agenda, no need to hurry to the next thing, just a moment together to enjoy this meal. And as they were eating, Jesus took some bread and blessed it. And then he broke it into pieces and gave it to the disciples saying, take it for this is my body. And he took a cup of wine and gave thanks to God for it. And he gave it to them and they all drank from it. And he said to them, this is my blood, which confirms the covenant between God and his people. It's poured out as a sacrifice for many. Picture yourself there in the room, hearing these words as Jesus spoke. This is my body and this is my blood. And God is making a covenant with us, with generations to come. This represents the sacrifice. Now open your eyes. You can imagine, we can make the assumption that the disciples didn't fully understand what Jesus was saying in this moment. And the only reason we have confidence in that is because we know what happens next. They didn't. We know that it wasn't much longer after this moment that Jesus went to the cross and he died for your sins and for mine. That his body was broken and his blood was spilled so that we could have freedom. But he didn't stay dead. There was a power that raised him and that power lives inside of us so communion is a representation it's symbolic of this moment where we can remember the sacrifice that jesus made so that we don't have to make it we don't have to come before god changing all of who we are sacrificing everything we have because jesus already did that it's not on us he already paid the price. And so when we take communion, we're remembering what he did, the price that he paid so that covenant could be ours. So what seems like a cup, communion to go, a little wafer and a little grape juice unifies us with every believer from the moment Jesus said these words until we enjoy communion together in heaven again. We are unified in this symbolism. So what seems like just a little cup, 
is really so much more. That it is in that broken body and it is in that shed blood that we find forgiveness and freedom for our, to for our tortured souls. So Sean and Brooks are going to come and they'll make sure that we all get these little packs. And just in case you don't uh, connect it right away, open the bottom first. Because if you don't, you're going to pour grape juice in your lap. So open the bottom. And then I'd love for you to just hold it. Don't take it yet. Because we're going to pray for each of these elements together. So as you get it, just open the bottom and hold the, the bread there in your hand. And then open the top and get it ready to go. Now holding that bread in your hand, let's pray for these elements individually together. So let's start with the bread. Jesus, we thank you for your body that was broken so that we could be whole. Jesus, we recognize that you sacrificed everything for us on the cross so that we don't have to live in shame or guilt or fear for what's about to come in the future, that we can find freedom and healing and wholeness because you made a bridge for us to get back to our creator. This world was too broken and yet you made a way. We are still broken and yet you continue to make a way. So Jesus, we confess all of the areas where we have tried to push you away, where we have tried to do it on our own and we recognize that there is no freedom like the freedom you give. There is no healing like what we find in you. So Jesus, we're sorry for all of the ways we failed on our own, for all of the ways we weren't enough because we know that you are. Just take a few moments and tell Jesus all of the things that you need to confess all of the ways that you feel like you have failed, all of the ways that you feel like you are too broken. You don't have to say it out loud. Just talk to Jesus and tell him. acknowledge our brokenness before you. We ask for your forgiveness, for your healing, for your help, every step of this journey. We thank you. Let's take the bread together. And now let's pray for the cup. Jesus, we thank you for your blood that was spilled so that we could be healed. There was no other reason for the sacrifice you made than for humanity to find healing. 
so that we could be connected to our creator again. It has nothing to do with anything that we've done and everything to do with all of who you are. So Jesus, thank you. We remember the sacrifice you made so that a covenant could be fulfilled in us. Just take a few moments to thank him for what he's doing in your life, the healing that he's bringing to your brokenness. Jesus, we love you. Thank you for healing. Thank you for wisdom. Thank you for restoration. We love you. Let's take the cup together. Communion was meant, always meant, to be done in community. This is something that we get to do together as a body of believers to remember Jesus, to honor him, to thank God for the sacrifice. And so this moment is a holy moment where we together as a family got to connect with our creator. So before you go, I wanna pray for us one more time and then we're going to tell you a few things before you head out the door. But I don't want to leave this moment in a cavalier manner. I want to recognize what God is doing in our hearts. So God, we love you. We thank you. We know that the work you are doing in this room right now is bringing healing and freedom to our tortured souls. God, we've bought into so many lies. We've done so many stupid things, and yet you love us. You meet us. You help us. So God, thank you for letting us be changed so that when we walk out those doors, we are fully prepared to face whatever is waiting for us because we know that you are with us. You are leading us. You are guiding us. You have a purpose for our lives. So we thank you for all that you're doing. And it's in your name we pray. Amen.